Unless you're a pro cyclist, chances are you're like me. You're juggling a thousand things while still trying to hit your cycling goals. And when you do get a big ride in, let's say on a Saturday, there's basically no time to recover. Suddenly it's Monday, you're tired from your ride, and blam, right back into the week. That's where this week's sponsor, Synchronicity Full Spectrum Hemp Oil, comes in. This plant-based supplement focuses on delivering the full effect you can feel from the highest quality full-spectrum hemp oil in the world. Synchronicity is scientifically proven to help you sleep better, reduce muscle fatigue, and even achieve a better state of mind. With supplements, tinctures, and topical options, this sounds pretty good after a long Saturday ride, Synchronicity is a natural fit for your training plan, your family, and your legs. Well, thank you. Go to synchronicityhempoil.com to get 30% off your first order when you use the code ADVANTAGE. That's synchronicityhempoil.com. Get 30% off when you use the code ADVANTAGE and see how much better you feel when you feel the full effect. Thanks so much to Synchronicity Hemp Oil for sponsoring this week's episode of the show. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a Tuesday morning here at the home office. Good morning, good afternoon, or should I say good day, mate, to all of you out there in Villain News Podcast uh, world. Good day, indeed, because this week on villainews.com, you may have seen uh, Aussie Week is going on on uh, villainews.com. We have lots of stories about Australian cyclists, uh, interviews with Aussie riders, feature stories on some of the um, themes of Aussie cycling. And this is all because this was to be the week that the Tour Down Under was going to run the uh, official World Tour opener. But of course, the Tour Down Under called off this year due to COVID-19. But ah, we didn't want we didn't want to let the opportunity uh, pass us by to tell some of our favorite stories about Australian cycling and reach out to some of our favorite Australian cyclists. And so um, as you will see on the site, we have interviews with like Cadell Evans and Lucy Kennedy and Amanda Spratt and a whole bunch of other Aussie cyclists on there. And uh, Aussie Week continues on the Vel News podcast this week, where we're gonna get at, we're gonna get to it. We're gonna uh, second half of the show here from Cadell Evans and Lucy, Lucy Kennedy, um, and then we're going to talk about some of the reporting we've been doing around Australia Week. I would do more of an Aussie accent thing, but it's just it's bad. It's really really bad. Apologize apologies for the good day, mate. Um, on the podcast today, we have Jim Cotton and Andrew Hood. Jim. Good day. Good day. Um, do you have a an Aussieism that um, is your favorite that you just love to hear Australian people say, uh, or maybe some Aussie slang that you'd like to share with the listeners? The the overuse of look is always a good one, or ability to make a nickname out of any name possible. I think they're probably the two standouts. Yeah, I'm still um, trying to uh, decipher some of the Australian nickname rules. Because I remember uh, years back when, you know, the Aussie riders would come into town and I'd hang out with a lot of them and they'd all have these really bizarre nicknames for each other. And then they'd, just, you know, tell me sort of the root of the nickname. And it was like, all oh, right, we call him Chazwaza because, uh, you know, his name is Dave and Dave rhymes with grave and there's a grave digger and the grave digger, you know, he walks to work. And when you walk, you're Chazin and we sometimes when you wasn't, so he's Chazwaza. I mean, it would just be this like really circular logic about why someone had uh, a nickname and I still do not understand. And, um, you know, Australian listeners out there, please write in 
with a firm explanation for how to come up with a, a good Australian nickname. Uh, how about you, Hoodie? Do you have some good slang or Aussieisms that you feel like permeate the uh, the the global lingo of cycling. Yeah, there's a, there's a few, but I you know, in fact, it was just a few weeks ago that I was channel surfing and came across uh, Crocodile Dundee. Uh, you know, the movie back I think it was back in the '80s, and it was just a, such a funny movie that it's kind of reintroduced introduced this uh, Aussie stereotype to the American audience, the wider global audience, and for better or for worse, it's kind of stuck. I think the Aussies that I know, you know, it's quite a diverse nation. You know, most of them hate the crocodile Dundee image, but man, it, it sure stuck. And and uh, you know, throw another ship in the Barbie, mate. Come on. <laughs> um, I do like the look, uh, Jim. I, that reminds me of Rowan Dennis. When you're interviewing Rowan Dennis, he starts off any every answer with like "look," and I, I you know, I think it sort of uh, gets his, you know, gives him a moment to pause and sort of give his brain focus. But it does. As the person listening to when Rowan Dennis says, look, it gives like what he's about to say an extra uh, level of seriousness. Like, all right, I better Ted pay attention, man. He's saying, he's saying, look, look, the thing about ripping people's legs off in the Giro d'Italia is X. We love you, Rowan Dennis. Yeah, it, it feels a bit like you're being told off. Like when you when you speak to Matt White and look as in every sentence, it's, it's kind of like you've done something wrong and he's kind of giving you a talking down. but. It's, just just the way it goes in Australia, obviously. <laughs> well, the Australians are a force in global cycling. There are reasons behind that. There's a long history and tradition there. If we wanted to, we could write every story on velonews.com about the rich history and culture of Australian cyclists and, not, and still not scratch the surface. Uh, we've been doing our best uh, this week with Aussie Week. But uh, Aussie Week has definitely sprouted, and a lot of our stories have stemmed from connection to the Tour Down Under. Um, this is the biggest race in Australia. It's been going on since 1999. In 2008, it became a world tour race. There is a women's race as well, uh, which you know we've heard has been on the trajectory to becoming a, a women's world tour race as well. But of course, the race did not happen this year. It was called off. Um, Hoodie, before we get to our discussion about Australian cyclists, you know, you did some reporting around um, the, you know, the ev eventual decision to call off this race. What can you tell us about the process that race organizers went through to come to the decision to call off this race and the impact that it's likely to have on Australian cycling? Yeah, I talked to Stuart O'Grady uh, this week. He is the new race director, took over from Mike Turner, who was the founding director, uh, a former trackie. He retired after the 2020 edition. You know, it's funny. I was at last year's Two Down Under, and that's when we first heard the first whispers of what coronavirus was. It was the first cases were coming out of out of uh, China. And uh, I remember we were road tripping across Australia from the Kid Elevens from Tour Down Under to the Cadell Evans race the next weekend. And suddenly all the hotels were empty. And the hotel owners were telling us it was because the Chinese tourists have all canceled. And they were staying home. So, uh, you know, what a strange year it's been. And flash forward a year. I mean, the Tour Down Under was one of the last races to complete. And then going into 2021, it's one of the first races to be canceled. And uh, Stuart O'Grady was just saying that they were looking at all kinds of opportunities and options of trying to fly the Peloton over in a couple of charter flights, isolate them at maybe like a, an isolated hotel out in the vineyard country, uh, keep them in an active quarantine, you know, because coming into Australia, the government has introduced this two-week hard quarantine. And we're even seeing now all the Australian Open tennis players are stuck in a hotel for two weeks. 
can't even go out. So Australia is really clamped down on their borders, you know, going back several months already. So there was no way they, they could get around that in a practical way. And they also said that, you know, most of the teams didn't have an interest in bringing their riders so far away from the European base, putting them under a strict quarantine and then having the possibility of them either being stuck there or having more quarantines when they come back. So they just pulled the plug in the world tour event. They're having a, what they're calling a festival of cycling this week with a mix of uh, events across all disciplines. And they have uh, quite a good contingent of all the Aussie world tour pros who are still down there. Uh, Bike exchange, Richie Port, some of the other riders are participating. So they're doing stuff because in Australia right now, actually, you know, it's, it's almost COVID free because they have been so strict. So they can have public events you know, with some protocols, but, you know, the way better off situation there in Australia than they are in the rest of the world right now. Yeah, I think some of the interesting feedback I got from the riders I talked to was, um, you know, Australia has done a really good job of clamping down its borders and making travel in and out of the country very difficult, which, you know, hey, it's what you need to do during this COVID pandemic. But because of that, like some of the Australian cyclists have, you know, they had to make really difficult decisions at the end of last season of like, do I go home? and know that I might not be able to come back to Europe? Or do I stay in Europe um, because, you know, r- rolling the dice here, thinking that if I go back to Australia, I might not be able to come back. So Amanda Spratt, for example, stayed in Europe, and she is over there training and doing the team camp and preparing for the season. Lucy Kennedy, your teammate on Team Bike Exchange, uh, she's in Australia, and she had some real questions about whether or not she was going to be able to get back over to the season to the to the Europe and in, in the start for the season, and I, it's just an interesting decision that they had to make. But obviously, yeah, the the international travel side of it was the big thing with this race. Like when you're asking hundreds of people to come over from Europe amid a global pandemic, um, you know, there's just the I, I would assume the expense of doing you know a two week quarantine and all this stuff. It's just it's not feasible at this point, which un- isn't a real unfortunate thing for the race. You know, when we talk about this race and how it's grown and what it means to Australian cyclists. I'm curious if you guys got any feedback on uh, from riders about what they think taking a year off is going to mean from this race for this race and for the, you know, up and coming riders. Jim, I'm curious if you got feedback from riders about what they thought about the race taking a year off. Yeah, I spoke to Mitch Docker from EF Nippo and um, he was saying how it's such a big kind of shop window for young Australian riders and domestic riders to sort of put themselves in front of, you know, sports directors from around the world. And um, he he sees it and Australians in general see it as a, a real big opportunity for Aussies to sort of put their name into the European scene. And Mitch was sort of wondering whether the absence of it in 2021 will have any impact on sort of the, the pipeline for young Australians in the years to come. But um, I think above all, they're all just glad that um, O'Grady's so committed to it coming back next year and, you know, focused on keeping the, keeping the tour down under alive. You know, what perspective did you guys get from the Aussie, Aussie pros that you talked to about the importance of this race? Uh, Hoodie, I'll start with you. You know, O'Grady is the team director. He's also the first winner of the race. Um, what did he say about how, you know, the, the role that this race now occupies within Australian cycling and how that has grown and evolved over the years? When, when, when the first tour down under happened, he said he put that right at the center of his season goals was to win the first race. He won it twice. And every Australian I've talked to said 
it's the only big major race that they have a chance to race in front of their hometown crowds, in front of their family and friends, and to race really in front of their own nation. Uh, you know, all these guys are kind of like the Americans. You know, they have to pack up and pull up stakes and, and go to Europe and dedicate their lives to that. So a chance to compete in their sport on, on home ground, especially for uh, the riders from Adelaide. I mean, it's a big cycling hotbed. Grady's from there. Rowan Dennis is from there. A bunch of other riders live there. Uh, and uh, for them, the race has huge personal importance, but it's also it's also grown over the years, too. You know, it's not anymore. It kind of started out almost as a training race. There used to be some pretty wild stories coming out of uh, the first couple editions of the Tour Down Under. And believe me, that's all buttoned up and uh, people take it pretty seriously. I mean, the points are the same as Perry Nice or the, uh, the Dauphiné. So teams go down there. They want to get those points. The riders want to get the results and they can use it really as a trampoline for the rest of the European racing season. So for the Aussie riders, it's it's one of their top goals. I think the other interesting element is that it falls in January. So first of all, there's a lot of comparisons here between Tour Down Under and uh, the Amgen Tour of California, especially those early editions when the Amgen Tour of California was in February. But yeah, it's at this early time of the year and so we hear these stories of yeah in the past you know the euros were coming over but using it as kind of training camp and now it's not training camp it's fast it's aggressive people want to win but still like the since it's so early and it falls you know the early early for the euro riders but right in the middle of the summer for the aussie riders that the aussies have this incredible advantage of being able to like train through the winter and really gear up for it um, and Jim, in reading some of the comments you got from the Aussie riders, that creates a kind of a different challenge and interesting dynamic of itself. The fact that this thing is so early in the season, yet they all want to be fit for it. Yeah, when I was speaking to to a couple of the guys, they were saying there's this real tension because they have to be fit and on form in front of their home crowd. And when they're going up against these domestic like 21-year-olds who are looking to sort of spark something off for themselves uh but then they've got maybe their big goals might be in the Ardennes or the, the tour or whatever like four or six months later so they can go into the tour down under super fit and then by mid-february they're like completely cracked and like need some time off and um mitch docker was actually saying that he knows that uh simon gerens used to actually have to take like two weeks off straight after um the tour down under so that he could be recovered again for uh, for the Arden classics so i think for some of these aussie world tour riders they're obviously very sad to not be at the down, at tour down under right now but there's probably a, a small element of relief that uh they've sort of got off the hook from the early early season sort of training and racing load as well yeah, I know we've seen that dynamic with Richie Port and I feel like even with Daryl Impey, who are, you know, both of them multiple multiple time winners, where, you know, there have been times where Port was flying and won the overall, you know, he's the king of Old Willunga Hill. And in some of these seasons where he's done really well at uh, Tour Down Under, you know, he's basically then just a ghost until like Romandy or the Dauphiné. You know, you just don't see him at all. And it's sort of recovery and then building back into it. And with Impey, you know, I mean, he's this very versatile rider. But I've always wondered, it's like you see him, you know, being a big star at the Tour de France and winning some of these stages. But, you know, there's other parts of his career you wonder like, well, you know, could he have done well in Ardennes or Cobble Classics? Um, but he's he's he commits himself to being really fit for Tour Down Under. Yeah, just to get back on what Jim just said, I, I just talked to Zay Olympia the other day, 
And that's exactly what he said. He goes, yeah, it's too bad. The race isn't happening. But for me, it's almost a blessing in disguise. He goes, because he was racing on, you know, Bike Exchange, Origa, Green Edge, all those years where he and Simon Garens and, and Impy were the guys to win that race. And he said the pressure from the team was, was equal to the Tour de France. So he said for this year to skip it might, you know, everyone's hoping, hoping it's just a one-off one hiccup. But uh, he said he's kind of happy that it's not happening just for the exact reason. Some of those guys as well who um, stayed over in Europe, um, I spoke to a couple of them who stayed in Spain uh, through Christmas. They also uh, kind of suggested there was a bit of relief that they got off the duty of going seeing hundreds of family members in the space of about 10 days when they went back to uh, to Australia. So they actually kind of got some downtime over Christmas rather than just going seeing aunts and cousins and, you know, all these family members that they probably don't really, would probably rather have skipped in any uh, any other circumstances. I like the tour of California. You know, it's a race where the riders, you know, they're not staying all, you know, all morning in the team bus and then just coming out right before a uh, sign-in and, you know, taking a couple selfies and breezing through the crowd. Like, this is a local hometown race. So, for, especially for the Australian pros, they talk about, you know, hey, we're sitting out in the deck chairs and people can come up and say hello and we're very accessible. And, it, you know, it's not the Tour de France where these guys are just like squirreled away. And so uh, they talk about how like, you know, yeah, the Aussie fans, like this is a big deal. It's like the one time a year where you can come out and get your photo with the riders. Um, Jim, you touched on it there, which this is also just like, this is the springboard race. So if you're a hungry up and coming Australian pro, um, you want to target the Tour Down Under to get seen, to get in a breakaway, to get a result, to get in front of a World Tour team director and have a conversation because it might further your career and our reporting and again check out velnews.com we have a couple different stories that delve into this dynamic and how australian pros have used the tour down under to leapfrog to europe because one of the other i feel like interesting dynamics that we touched on in reporting is this concept of when australians go to europe and it, it is somewhat similar to americans is that they're uprooting their lives they're moving to a different continent you know they're not like europeans who can go home on the weekends and see their family um, but there's this interesting dynamic that happens that when these young Aussies come over to Europe, it seems to be that the Australian diaspora really looks out for its own. And so there's this, um, these stories of like the more senior Australian riders, depending on what team that, you know, no matter what team they are kind of giving advice, taking the young ones under their wings, showing them the ropes. And um, I, I'm curious what stories you guys got for, around this topic of the Aussies, the new Aussies coming to Europe and what it's like for them. Yeah, when I spoke to um, to a couple of the guys, there were sort of mixed stories, but it was it was more generally that one, once an Aussie moves over, especially to somewhere, if it's somewhere like Girona or Nice, they just they just naturally kind of gravitate toward each other, not not through intent, but there's just that sort of desire for the home culture to kind of look after each other. And, you know, Aussies have got their own unique sort of humor and their own, you know, I don't know, just like unique quirks that you can't, you don't really find in Europe. And it just lends itself to them all kind of pulling together. And um, I think quite a few of the um, Australian guys, like the young American guys, like share, share apartments together and, you know, socialize together a lot outside of training as well. Yeah, when I when I was talking to uh, some of the older riders, they were saying how easy the younger riders have it today because 
just with communication, flights are a lot cheaper and kind of a lot easier to move around, a lot easier to stay in touch with family and friends. And, you know, talking to guys like uh, Matt White and uh, Goodell Evans. And uh, I was talking to Jack Bauer, who is uh, he's Kiwi, but he's kind of Australian, you know. And, uh, and they were just saying how back in those days they had to just come over with their suitcase, right, race the Kermesses, try to find a contract with some Belgian team and, and just jump off the deep end and saying how the network was there, but it's really dramatically changed in the last 10 or 15 years to make it a lot easier for these guys. Yeah, the story I got from uh, Garens was that, you know, when he came over early in his career, like 2002, 2003, 2004, and he's competing on this amateur French team, um, you know, he's totally tapping into the network, uh, sleeping on Mark Renshaw's couch for a while, uh, got a donated couch from Bradley McGee and slept on a mattress that Stuart O'Grady had given him. And I think he like borrowed a car from some other Australian cyclist. Um, Amanda Spratt was saying how, you know, the older riders would give her all their old kits and socks and stuff. But really, the, the, the feedback that I got from the riders was that, yeah, okay, there's the taking you under the wing and like telling you where to, which pizza place to go to and which one not to go to. But really, it's like advice given about like the races and also just sort of the like the, you know, the approval from the older riders that like, hey, you did a good job or like, hey, you know. At 95K, there's a roundabout and the wind shifts and like be there, you know, even if you're not on their team. It's sort of this advice that gets passed down by, you know, through national lines and then the approval that's there from the older generation that helps these guys and gals um, thrive. And I feel like there's an important distinction there um, potentially between the Americans and the Australians. And this comes down to this concept of like full commitment and of attitude, which um, well, also, there's a, there's a big distinction between men and women because, you know, talking to Lucy Kennedy, she's like, yeah, you know, it's tough for the guys to come over, but at some point they're earning enough that they can bring their families over and they can kind of transport Australia to Europe. For the women, we're not earning enough to be able to do that. So it's like, you know, we're still really relying on each other because I can't tell my husband to like uproot his, you know, his business and come over to, uh, to live in Girona because, you know, it's not getting paid enough to do it. But um Back to the distinction, which is this concept of like full commitment, you know, of like when you're an Australian cyclist and you want to go race in Europe and be a pro, there's a level of full commitment that's required because you're not going to come home and you're not going to work a part-time job. And like, it's sort of an all or nothing type attitude. And so in my conversations with some of these Australian writers, like, yeah, is there like a similar personality type you see or similar, like, you know, what are the similarities you see between the riders that co who come over there and do well? And are basically, you know, I think a lot of times we think of Australian cyclists as being a little crazy, like to party, you know, like to have a good time. But but to a person, the 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 response I got was like, you're getting really serious people who are extremely committed and are kind of like the do whatever it takes to like to make it work because you've left loved ones behind. You're far away from home. If you can't hack it with the lifestyle, like you really have to want it. And I see that with the American pros too. But, you know, sometimes there's still the like, yeah, man, I, you know, I want to be a painter or like I want to, you know, I don't know, like I want to race, but have like my other hobbies and my whatever. With these Australian riders, they're like, you know, no, no hobby. Like I'm a cyclist. That's what I am committed to. Um, I'm curious what feedback you guys got um, in your conversations. Yeah, Matt, I spoke to Matthew Heyman, uh, who obviously won uh, the Paris-Roubaix a few years ago, and he's now a sports director with um, Team Bike Exchange. And when he turned pro, 
which was around 2000, I think, uh, he said that it was, you know, a real huge decision. Um, as Hoodie said, it was it was a lot of a different move uh, back then. It was a much bigger commitment. And he knew that once he was packing up his bags to kind of come over to Europe, I think it was to race for some small um, Dutch team, he knew that, you know, he had to really make a real good go of it. Whereas you were getting 20, 21-year-old guys from, Belgium or France or whatever signing contracts for a similar team just thinking yeah you know I'll, I'll give it a go for three or four years and if it doesn't work out I can just you know jump back into mum and dad's house for a bit and uh, you know get a job in the bank and um, yeah so he, it, it really focused his mind and you know made him really work hard in training to deliver the results to make that big you know cross the world move pay off yeah, again, talking to some of the more veteran riders, you even see them, how integrated they became in the European culture. Guys like Scott Sunderland and Alan Piper are kind of, you know, some of the original Aussie pioneers that came across. You know, those guys still live in Europe. Their commitment was so one way that they both live in Belgium now. I think they have Belgian partners and they own homes there and businesses. So, you know, it's very different how that commitment was back in those days because, it was one way and it was either you made it or you didn't. And I think that's very different from how it is for today, for today's riders. And, and also, also I have this, one quick thing though. Uh, I think it was Cadell Evans told me this too. He said, yeah, you know, it's a lot easier today to come across for these young pros. You know, it's the flights are cheaper. I mean, back in the day, you know, a round trip from Australia was probably six, 7,000 bucks, you know, way back in the day. And now, you know, you can get a round trip for $1,500 and maybe your team pays for it. Um, plus with the communication, but they're saying, yeah, it's a little bit easier today. There's more pros that the pathway has been kind of uh, already uh, blazed by these early riders. But he said, once you get to Europe though, you still got to be a great bike racer. The c competition as a result is much more international and you're not competing just against your Aussies and the Euros. It's the best riders in the whole world. Yeah. And the feedback, you know, I asked a few riders, well, well, when it doesn't work out, why is it? And they said, oh, it it doesn't work out for a ton of riders, just like any other nationality. It's like it works out for some, it doesn't work out for 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 others. But they said, you know, usually when it doesn't work out, you can trace the roots of it back to not being able to assimilate to European culture and just like not, you know, not like feeling comfortable living abroad, you know, homesickness. Um, you know, not being able to integrate into the different culture, whatever, like that tends to be the root of it. I mean, there's obviously sporting reasons and, you know, fitness reasons, et cetera. But uh, I don't know. It's just different. Yeah. It's like you can't go home on the weekends and you can't really go home once a month, you know, like – you know, you talk to some of the American riders and they have the time. It's okay, I'm going to Girona. Okay, I'm going to come back and have my rest period and then go back over there again. But with the Aussies, a lot of times it's just like they're over there for, you know, most of the year or um, years on end. Um, I think the other interesting dynamic going on right now that could impact it is changes going on with the um, – you know, the, the Federation and national team program, which, you know, in the past has been under the Australian Institute of Sport. It sounds like there's that now this, um, this uh, new uh, cycling federation that's going to take over things like development. And um, right now, it seems like a lot of that is in flux, you know, especially in speaking to the women cyclists. They talked about, you know, these um, travel trips that would take national team riders over there, similar to what we saw with USA Cycling with like, hey, it's a whole team of, you know, talented women. And we weeded them out in this bizarre camp that was like sort of psychological warfare, but came with the very best. And we're going to put them in the races and see who does well. And same with juniors and U23s. And um, it sounds like those programs are in flux right now. Uh, 
you know, it's not the only way that riders have been identified and come over. Uh, Hoodie, I know you talked to Cadell and uh, some other riders about this, but what role historically has um, government help and federation played in getting these riders over there? Yeah, there was a big push before the Sydney Olympics, of course, uh, to, to kind of develop uh, potential medalists in really all sport. It wasn't just cycling. It was a nationwide all sport push. And ever since those Olympics, the program has still been in place, but the funding has been steadily gone down over the years. And one thing I did pick up on when I was talking to people, though, was also how uh, technology is helping riders to stand out just virtually. You know, if you're like pumping out these huge numbers on Strava, getting a uh, king of the mountain times on local climbs, you know, people are going to notice that as well. So the way that talent has identified has changed and evolved over the years as well. The funding is always going to be an issue. I know there's still some funding. I mean, writers were getting stipends back in the day, helping with travel. That's been reduced. But so I'd say probably Australia's in between, say, the UK or some of the European uh, programs that have government-designated money and, say, the United States, which is just completely a private inst- institution, nonprofit, that has to re- basically ha- had in hand to underwrite their costs. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic shifts going forward and whether it impacts the, you know, the the flow of Australian cyclists getting over there to get opportunities. Interestingly, uh, Hoodie, what you were just saying there about uh, virtual platforms giving riders opportunities. Uh, I think both of the winners of the, the Zwift Academy uh, this this year, um, they were both Australians, I think. And um, so one of them's now got a contract with uh, with Matthew Anderpool at Alps and Phoenix and the... Um, the women's winner is uh, with Canyon Tram for a year or longer. I'm not sure. So, yeah, I guess there's there's always opportunities to be had in terms of getting yourself out there. So, guys, before we get to our guests on the podcast, we need to build our Mount Rushmore. That is the top four for Australian cyclists. I know we've all created our lists, um, but uh, quickly, I'm going to start with me then of my four Australian cyclists that I would like to see etched in stone at this point. Uh, The first, of course, is uh, Cadell Evans, the first and only Australian winner of the Tour de France, uh, mountain bike World Cup champion, and all-around stuffed animal lover who uh, we saw race so many times over the years and is just a delightful interview and we're going to hear from later. Uh, Second, Kathy Watt. That's right. Kathy Watt, the uh, gold medalist in the road race at the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona, kind of a surprise winner, uh, then w- took a silver in the pursuit later in that Olympics, sort of the, um, you know, one of the first big female cyclists to burst onto the stage and have big international results. Um, third, I have Anna Mears, track cyclist, gold medalist, another Olympic hero. And fourth, this is my outlier who I'm sure will get voted off. Sam Hill, downhill mountain biker, three-time world champion. Used to interview Sam all the time. Um, The first Australian man to win downhill mountain bikings, world championships. Okay, Andrew Hood, who's your four? Uh, I'm glad to to see you tapped into the the dirt scene there. Uh, Some great names that come out of that from Australia as well. Uh, For me, you have to have uh, Phil Anderson, first Aussie to have the yellow jersey. He came – one of the pioneers came across – in the 1980s, really probably the most successful European racer, really until uh, Cadell came over. Uh, I get yeah, go Cadell and Anna Mears right there. I, I'd add Robbie McEwen just because of his tenacity in the sprints 
and hit the space he filled in the, in the sprints for many years. He was kind of one of the top dogs, uh, really in the bunch. I remember, uh, you know, he was one of the few riders who wouldn't get bullied around from uh, Lance Armstrong back in those days. There was a famous incident where uh, Lance was trying to be a bully, and, and McEwen said to him, "Was oh mate, you better shut your mouth before I put my fist in it." <laughs> So for that, Robbie McEwen certainly deserves a special recognition on Mount Rushmore. I like it. All right, Jim. For me, I would. Um, I agree. Is well, you've got to have Cadell and uh, Adam Mears in there. But just to bring it into the present a little, uh, I'm going to go with two uh, slightly off the cuff ones, uh, which is Richie Port, because you know you got to love Richie, and he got he got third in the Tour de France just as he kind of decided to give up his GC ambitions. And also uh, Rohan Dennis, just because, I mean, what a character! How can you not? How can you not have him represented somehow? Uh, he's a he's kind of a, a mad genius. So um, yeah, I'll give a shout out to him as well. Look, Jim. Look, Jim. <laughs> no, uh, Rohan Dennis, um, time trial world champion, domestique, and crusher of Wilco Kelderman's dreams, enormous tattoo haver, and um, propagator of look. To begin with answers, um, we love Rowan Dennis here on the podcast. Okay, so if uh, Anna Mears and Cadell Evans are automatic nominations, um, we have two that we need to figure out. Um, maybe we choose an old and a new. So between Phil Anderson and Robbie McEwen, who are we going to go with? I'll go Phil. Yeah, I agree with Phil. All right, Phil is on it. Um, and then a newer... We have uh, Richie Port, Rowan Dennis, and uh, Sam Hill. Plucky Sam Hill. Um, who are we going to go with? I'll, I'll go with. Uh, I'll go with. Uh, that's a tough one. I mean, uh, uh, Richie and Rowan have both done amazing things. Uh, I'll go with Rowan just because he has such a feisty character. He's, he's one of the angry ones in the bunch. So we'll go with Rowan. Yeah, I, I do feel that Rowan is such a unique character that he deserves to get his face chiseled into a mountain. So, yeah, let's go with Rowan. All right. Anna Mears, Cadell Evans, Phil Anderson, and Rowan Dennis with um, Robbie McEwen and uh, Kathy Watt just like extra, like right there. You know, they're sort of, if we could expand this, if we had a bigger mountain, we would chisel their names in there um, as well. Because, yeah, if you tell Lance Armstrong you're going to put your fist in his face holy cow you got cojones <laughs> well thank you to jim cotton and andrew hood for coming on the podcast this week to talk about uh australian cyclists um let's hear from our guests of honor lucy kennedy first and then cadell evans winner of the 2011 tour de france Hi, Lucy. It's Fred Dreyer. At Hi, Fred. I guess a good place to start is I actually don't know very much about your development and progression. And I'm I'm curious how your development and progression played out either with the Cycling Australia. Did it contribute to it? Was it in, were you, did you did you kind of come into the sport outside of it? Uh, I'm really curious to hear your development and what role, if any, the Federation played in it. It did have a big role, actually. I was lucky. Um, so I I was a runner before I was cycling. So I didn't start riding a bike until I was, I think I was 25. Um, I basically hadn't ridden a bike since I was a kid. Um, and so I, I was actually running in at, I, I was on scholarship at Iowa State 
um, running track and cross country over there and I got pretty badly injured and sort of came home and I've, I basically haven't run since then and got on a bike to try and keep fit until I could run again and never did. <laughs> and one thing led to another and there I was on the bike. So it, it did happen very quickly. I, um, I kind of did my first local, you know, local criterium in 2014, I want to say. And then I started some domestic kind of national series racing in 2000. And I did a bit of that in 2015, 2016. Uh, you may have heard of the the infamous Australian Women's Selection Camp. It's sort of this military-style camp where they it, you come in with, I don't know, maybe like starts with probably 15 or 20 riders and you all went to the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra and it was this kind of, yeah, military-style elimination camp, like pretty grueling, heaps of riding, but also mental, you know, mental games. You were assigned a number and you weren't ever referred to by your name and you'd be given, you, you'd go out and do tests where you didn't actually know what you were doing or how long it would be going for, uh, um, all these crazy things and it was eliminated and then the final however many you know six riders or something would be selected as the national team to then go and race in Europe so I um, as a complete unknown rider I was invited to go to that camp in 2000 and, oh it must 2015 I think so that's where from there I got a spot on a good domestic team Wait, did you, were you selected? Did you make it? I actually made it to the end. I think there were eight riders left at the end and then six of those eight were selected to be on the national team. But I was so raw. Like I had, you know, I was putting out big numbers in the tests, but I couldn't ride a bike. <laughs> so I was kind of this enigma where it was like, geez, this girl is like really fit and really really like can ride a bike, but certainly cannot go and go into a European peloton. Um, so they didn't quite know what to do with me really, but from there I got a, um, you know, a spot on a good domestic team so I could start racing a bit. Uh, with some years of looking back on this camp, what are your overall thoughts on, uh, on the camp and, uh, whether it really did, uh, you know, select the best of the best? Um, I, so I, I actually really enjoyed it. I loved it. Um, and you've got to be like a little bit sadistic or something, I think to enjoy it. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I mean, it had its merits, but it had its flaws as well. Um, yeah, like the part of it, the mental games were partly because when you go and race in Europe, especially from Australia, it is like extremely challenging, you know, being away from home and, um, just being thrown into this completely different world. So it, like it, it's yeah, it had its merits. The mental games had its merits, but also were went a bit too far sometimes. What what uh, what do you remember uh, specifically of a mental game that you've? That, well, like what's a mental game? Like what do you remember from one of the ones? The hardest thing that actually the hardest it was actually became a really hard physical thing for me is uh, so our uh, what we call Anzac Day, which is the uh, like remembrance a remembrance day for. Um, it was that was during the camp. I think it was like the final day of the camp, and so we'd been doing six days of really hard, hard riding and racing. And we were the night before Anzac Day. We were kept up until pretty late, uh, 11, 11 midnight maybe, and then uh, we went to bed. And then we were all woken up at it was like three o'clock in the morning, and we had to to go to the dawn service um, where we had to 
stand like it was like I've never it never been so painful to just stand awake it was freezing cold um on three hours sleep on day six or seven of this brutal camp and we did the dawn service and then we all loaded into a into a bus and we just drove they were just driving us we didn't know where we were going and we parked and we got on our bikes and they said okay uh now we all set off individually and they're like this is an individual time trial um and they didn't tell us how far it is. Um, <laughs> so it was just like, you're doing an individual time trial until we say stop. Um, and then we stopped that one and then we kind of kept riding for a bit as a group and then we stopped and then we did another one. And I think we did a total of three um, unknown individual time trials. for a t- we, You know, we rode 150 k's that day. It was storm. There was like a hail storm. Uh, it was just epic epic day. I mean, when you look back at your experience in the system, I mean, was it the coaching? Was it exposure to the races? Like when you really think about what enabled you to thrive at that pro level and get that contract, what what are the things that were most important that the Federation gave you? Uh, the access, I guess. Um, that, yeah, the, the facility and the access to, to get to Europe and have a support. I mean, obviously we weren't paid or anything but just having a you know a director who knew what they were doing and a team that and being that you know the Australian National Federation we got invited to some good races uh, so just the access and the exposure then it's um that's what's the hardest I think to get for an Australian even even the ones that sort of take themselves over you know you can do camisas in Belgium and maybe you eventually work your way up but having that national team system and structure makes it you know, there's no way I would have done that in that space of time if, if not for the national team. And that, that was the actually that was the last time that there was a proper uh, national team tour that the Australian Federation has done. Sadly, when you look at, you know, your the experience of Australian cyclists in general, you know, you have to travel halfway across the world to make a living racing professionally. You know, you really have to commit to it because. Um, there's not a ton, well, there's, there's not a lot of way to make a living at it back home. I mean, it reminds me a bit of what North Americans go through as well. Um, I mean, what advantages do you feel like that gives Australian cyclists? When you look at the racers who have succeeded and made a go out of it, is there like a similarity in personality or experience that you feel like gives them an advantage? Uh, I mean, you have to be committed to what you're doing because otherwise it's not worth it. If you don't commit to it, it's not worth leaving your family and friends and, um, the safety of home. So it, it does it does attract a certain type of really focused, really, um, yeah, it, it, we, we are do all have a lot of similarity in that sense that it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's different level, it's different levels of commitment, I suppose. Like some of us are leaving, you know, I'm, I just got married actually, so you know, we've a lot of things. Yeah, we have you know partners on that can't come over. We're not male cyclists. We can't bring our families with us. So it's a it's a huge commitment to leave everything. You know, house and our husband on the other side of the world. Um, you want to make it worth it, uh, and it it does allow us to be. We're not just we're not we can't really be distracted. There's not that much to be distracted by. Uh, and you want to make the most of it. Well, Lucy, I've really enjoyed um, speaking to you. You know, I, I have all my boxes checked. I can let you get on with your morning or afternoon or middle of the night, whatever time it is there. I <laughs> still, don't, still don't really know. Um, but uh, you have been a very, you've been a delight to talk to. And um, I wish you nothing but good luck 
2021. And I really hope you make that Olympic team. Yeah, thanks a lot, Fred. It was really nice talking to you. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly looking to worry. I don't know about you. I'm constantly looking to improve my recovery. And right now, there's I get Ray. I don't know about you. I'm constantly looking to improve my recovery. And right now, there's a way I can recover faster and smarter. And I want you to know about it. Synchronicity Full Spectrum Hemp Oil does just that. Their scientifically superior products go way beyond CBD to bring you the whole plant effect. Adding their Full Spectrum Hemp Oil to your programming is a no brainer go to synchronicityhempoil.com to get 30 percent off your first order when you use the advantage that's synchronicityhempoil.com get 30 percent off when you use the code advantage see how much better you feel when you feel the full effect let's get back to the show well Cadell, this year is the, the 10th anniversary of your tour de france victory <clears throat> 2011 um, just wanted to talk to you about that for a, f- a few moments here. Uh, just looking back at, at, at what that meant to you professionally, you kind of you were saying before how you were kind of at a, a career crossroads there after kind of coming so close to the tour, and you felt that changing a team was really important to you, and BMC was the team that, that really put the faith into you. Talk about how important having that team around you was going into the 2011 tour. Um, oh, the, especially um, I joined BMC uh, very late in the 2009 year, um, but 2010 being our first season. And 2010 for me was actually one of my oh, one of those ones, just a little bit less bad luck. I um, I took the pink jersey and contracted uh, for, like influenza in the Giro. I took the yellow jersey with a broken elbow in the tour that year. Like, that was the year that, wow, this, what, what, we came so close yet we were so far. But then in 2011, we, um, we had a, already had a solid, um, uh, lead up, solid string of results leading up to the tour. And what it created within the team, sort of almost accidentally was, not, not quite accidentally, but everyone in the team felt that they didn't want to let the team down and that created this auto everyone just wanted to be the best they could at every race we went to and especially for the tour everyone just took their own initiative to do everything they can and prepare as well as they could to, to get on the start line for the 2011 tour uh firing on all cylinders and, and that was really um uh, i think the basis for for what created a, a real strong strength of unity within that team and we weren't strong in the mountains but i could um sort of look after myself for the most part there in the mountains, but we had this this awesome team, Bulgart, Quinciato, George in the flats to get me to the bottom of the climbs. And then I had guys like Steve Morabito for the for the in 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 the climbs right until the till like real crunch time, which was just just great. And and we still um we still um amongst uh, most of the team actually I was speaking to a name on the other day. Um I was speaking to Steve Morabito the other day, George Hinkerby was exchanging messages with him last night. Um you know, we still have a strong um bond between uh, most of the team team members actually, and that of course that was the year that uh, Thomas Vauclair got that uh, jersey and really held it <clears throat> held it for more than uh, you know more a good part of the race. Um, what uh, you know, talk about the dynamics of that race because you had Vauclair just kind of out there, and then of course you had the Schleck brothers that were real kind of the most direct GC threats. Must have been an interesting kind of challenge there tactically. Yeah, I had to um, play a little bit and risk a little bit. It was one of the few times I saw Judge panic actually because I was really trying to put 
letting Rockler go in the break that day. I was like, George wanted to chase. And it was one time George and I didn't, well, probably about the only time in our careers nearly, we disagreed on something. It's like, no, 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 let him out, let him out. Not more than three minutes or something. And it was really, it was really close in the end because we didn't expect Thomas to be able to hang on for so far. But uh, also at the same time, I wanted to put a bit of pressure on the, on like the Schleck brothers to, to chase as well. Cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to have, have us covering everything for everyone. Um, and that was, uh, yeah, that was just really, yeah, just taking risks and calculated risks. And, uh, but, yeah, you know, it was my, uh, eighth Tour de France, my 13th or 15th Grand Tour or something. I, I, you know, I'd been in that situation quite a few times before. So, so I, um, was to play with that. But then when it came down onto the Galibier, that was really the, where I really had to put every day of my, I think it was 17 year career into, um, every day of expertise into, into use that day to, to bring back uh, Andy Slick on the Galibier, on, on the tele, uh, Galibier and yeah, keep an eye on his brother and so on and so on. Yeah, that was really the, the key day, and that's when it was just mono a mono, uh, where you had to take those just huge poles. Basically, you were isolated, right? There were no teammates, no other riders around you. Just talk us through yeah. that moment there. That was such a spectacular day on the bike. Um, so um, Andy had a teammate join a teammate in the break, and from Briançon up to uh, Lotharay, it's only headwind, but there were so many big crowds at the tour, and there's so many campers parked on the side of the road. You sort of they were actually in the, on the race day. They were kind of protected from the wind, which I was sort of relying on a bit to to, to dampen their uh, to make things a little bit more difficult for them. But they took a, a lot more time than we expected, and because it was hard on the easy ride before, there weren't many guys left to ride, like from any team. When we got to onto the lot, turn off the lotterie onto the Galibia, I think it's about nine and a half k's or something to the top to the finish. And um, Contador was there. I was like, we need to ride. I'm like, oh, shit, yeah, we need to ride. And um, it was Contador who actually started to ride. And I, or I started to ride. We started to ride together. But after that, no one wanted to help me. I think um, the only one who had a teammate was um, Thomas Hopper, actually, in Roland, Pierre Roland. And I think Pierre Roland felt he should have rided, but he wasn't allowed to. Mm-hmm. And Vauclair, no way in hell was he going to help me win the Tour de France. So um, I was like, oh, I think you should ride. But in the end, I think it cost him a place on the podium, actually. But uh, that's, you know, that's, that's his problem, not mine. And I just had to go on my own. And really, I had to close the gap to Andy Schleck in front. But I had his brother, who was also on GC, on my wheel, ready to attack me. And so I had to save something for those attacks in the last kilometre. And I got on the front at about uh, six k's to go or something. And I think I think Basso might have done one or two turns, but he was going too slow. So I just had to ask him politely to get out of my way and <laughs> ride, ride to the finish, yeah. In those moments, um, what's what's going through your, your mind? I mean, it's, it's your whole career is on the line. Yellow jersey's on the line. Do you keep it granular and just down to the tactics, or do you let those other bigger thoughts enter into your mind, or is it just too too much pain to even think about anything? Else? Um, like I said, I, I've been in that situation a couple of times before, so I could stay calm. But the main thing was just yeah, just that, that's probably one of the hardest things to learn to stay calm in that situation. It's one thing to have the legs to ride and do that situation, but to stay calm—that's a whole other. That's a whole 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 other skill and a little bit of a. Um, uh, it's a little bit harder to learn than most people think, I think, but um, to stay calm and do what needs to be done. But because I'd been in that situation before, I could I could stay calm and and yeah, I just had to ride. Unfortunately, I, I'd been in that situation in 2008 on Alpha Wears actually, but I had a crash in the first week of that tour, and I, I just I was 
lacking a bit, lacking a bit at the top end. So, so I, I didn't have the legs to do it that year um, to bring um, bring back um, Carlos Sasto to to a place where I could come back and pass him in the time trial. But in 2011, I had the legs, so uh, just rode, did what I had to do. And uh, I, was, I had a few few little cues uh, when you ride Contador off the wheel or uh, Frank Slate can't attack you until like 250 metres to go. You're like, oh, this is, this is a good sign. Mm. So that day, of course, Volkler kept the jersey just by a few seconds. Schleck moved up. Then the next day was off Duez. Um, I think Andy won that day. And... Um, Ended up taking a little bit of time on you there. Um, what was the? No, I think um, Pierre Roland went on the up the ways. I oh, think. I'm sorry. That's, that's, uh, and and Andy moved into yellow. I think the going time. into the going into the time trial. So I was second going into the time trial. I think. Yep. And um, you know, I remember because we were staying up in that big hotel uh, on up the ways that night. And um, and yeah, it was really. Um, I had a feeling though, uh, Andy. He was like he wanted to have more time, and he was a bit unsettled by it. But that was just exactly I'd. I'd planned everything to to be 110% ready for that time trial, and I had my lines chosen, I had the tyres chosen, gearing, everything was just all ready to go, and I went out in the morning with uh, my teammate Steve Rapito, we did a pre-ride of the course, and okay, picked a few lines, and a few potholes here that I have to be careful of, but the rest, let's just... Wait till, wait till, wait till the countdown guns or the, or the gun goes off and um, do the rest then. Yeah, so the next day, the time trial, finished second, but got the time. I mean, how, how important was that to you at that point of your career? I mean, you made the history of the first Aussie winner, but for you personally, it must have been so much after all everything you'd been through throughout your long career. Well, I think apart, apart from the fact that I've come second twice at the Tour by less than a minute was already um, was already something, but... Also, like in seven or eight years, I've been investing my, dedicating my year, my season, pretty much my seven years of my life to, or even more than seven years, because a couple of years I wasn't even selected to go to the tour. But, but um, I dedicated so much to the process, to getting to the tour, that my focus was so much on the process that I hadn't realized I suppose what I'd done when it when it all happened, and finally I, I'm, I'm sitting in my office now, and I've got the cover of Le Kip from the day after that time trial. Um, on, on my desk and, and it makes me now that you say it, it makes me realise sort of what I did but I was so involved at the time on the process that um, that um, yeah I really uh, it was some months before I come to realisation to what it, what I'd come and what it achieved and, and, and how well how well taken it um, the, the victory was uh, received in Australia so uh, can you walk down the street uh, in Australia or are the people uh, still asking you for autographs and photos um, uh, I think a lot of people recognise me because of this damn pandemic. I'd be there right now, but <laughs> <laughs> with kids and quarantine and everything, it's a little bit complicated. Um, um, I I feel Australia. I feel I feel very well respected when I'm in Australia, and I suppose the big thing is no, no. When I get to the airport in Australia, I've had like the, the border control guy carry my bikes out for me to my car, parked at the airport, and things like that. I just feel so well respected and so well treated by everyone that I really feel like very yeah. I, I'm, I'm very honoured and very respected. Um, and yeah, we we can't wait to get back there. Um, <laughs> few little family things and stuff to, to sort out, but we'll be heading back there soon. Um, but, you know, Australia's um, been, um, oh, they've, a lot of people came into the sport of cycling during my career um, and certainly into the tour, and that's where the Tour de France, speaking about 
um, what it changed. One thing, the Tour de France goes so far beyond sport. It's incredible. That, that's one thing that amazed me going to. I know I went to Nutap to uh, Thailand last year and how many, uh, 2019. Mm. How many people there watch the Tour de France? It's like, it's amazing. Um, and that, that was so, so something I hadn't realized. And, and I suppose a lot of people, maybe they don't, in Australia, they, they don't follow cycling, but they did follow maybe my Tour de France. Uh, do you plan on any sort of uh, ceremonies this year? Or uh, Well, yeah, we were hoping to celebrate the uh, 10 years for, since the victory in, in my – I have a public ride at the Great Ocean Road Race every year and something which I'm hoping to be particip- participating myself until I'm 80 because that means I'm still riding my bike and staying fit and the race is still going ahead. But, of course, uh, we've had to make a decision to not hold the event because, of course, the, the situation. But um, oh, maybe in the, uh, in the European summer – Australian winter in July, we can we can organise something else like that. Organise something special to do with Australia. I hope so, but um, yeah, let's just see how things go with this whole pandemic thing. All right, well, appreciate the time. Thanks a lot uh, for sharing the uh, moments with us. And uh, you're very welcome. Have a great. Thanks day. for having me on, and um, yeah, stay safe, everyone. Mm-hmm.